We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning and happy Friday or Fri-yay, as I normally like to say uh, when I am choosing my coffee mug in the morning. And it is an important decision. I mean, I know that I talk about coffee a lot, but it's it's a very important thing in my life. And um, for all of you who are early birds as well and you are joining this morning, welcome. And I'm sure that coffee um, is, for most of you at least, an, an essential part of living. And I love my collection of coffee mugs because um, it's, it's just, it, it starts out the day with a choice of, you know, how, what kind of mood are we in and, and how, are, how are we feeling? And uh, mine today, actually, um, is, is from uh, Magic Kingdom and Disney World, and it actually says, living in a fantasy land. <laughs> so, um, you know, I wish. And sometimes, um, sometimes it seems like when we look at mainstream media and everything going on, it seems like the left is living in a fantasy land of their own creation. But um, that's my coffee mug this morning, and it's great to be here on a fry yay. And we have a couple of um, important headlines that I want to get to in this segment before we turn our attention uh, on this Friday to some really essential fundamental truths of working out our salvation. Because um, even though this show, as, as all of you who are regular listeners know, uh, we tend to focus on the civil government institution that uh, God ordained as part of the three spheres of government, the civil government, the family government, the church government, uh, within his created order and his limited delegated authority as the divine lawgiver. Um, we tend to, on this show, specifically focus on the civil government and what is going on in our American system of government, both on the federal and the state level. But there are times that we do need to turn our attention to church government as well and understanding uh, what it is about um, church government. There are times that we need to turn our attention to the family government, talk about parental rights, um, a well-ordered home, um, a lot of those things that impact uh, God's design for the family. And then other times we need to look at the full authority of God himself and who God is as the person of truth. Because if we really want to impact the three different spheres of government, we have to understand first and foremost theology or a knowledge of God. And that manifests itself and um, is is divided into a lot of different um, essential categories. And one of those is soteriology, which is the doctrines or the essential nature of salvation. How do we come into a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So we're going to turn our attention to soteriology um, in most of the show in the next two segments. Uh, but before that, I want to get to a couple of the headlines in our civil government and uh, world policy. And the first is... Uh, 
uh, from the Associated Press this morning, Israel has agreed to put in place four-hour daily humanitarian pauses in its assault on Hamas in northern Gaza starting on Thursday, the White House said, as Joe Biden pressed Israelis for a multi-day stoppage in the fighting in a bid to release hostages held by the militant group. Biden said Thursday there was, quote, no possibility of a formal ceasefire at the moment and said that it had taken a little longer than he hoped for Israel to agree to humanitarian pauses. So Biden uh, asked Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to institute the daily pauses during a Monday call and said he had also asked the Israelis for a pause of at least three days to allow for negotiations over the release of some hostages held by Hamas. And some of my sources are also telling me that there are other negotiations going on. I don't want to get into um, some of those details that are still confidential but be praying for all of the um, the hostages, uh, for everyone who is affected uh, by this Israeli conflict. And I'm always so privileged to have our good friend uh, Jill Rosenberg give us consistent updates from Jerusalem. And he will be on again on Tuesday. Um, we're, we're going to, throughout this whole conflict, um, have him on as a regular guest. We, we have been um, already for the past um, number of weeks, about the past month and a half or so since the conflict began on October 7th. Um, so he is going to be a regular generally on Tuesdays. So you can uh, look forward to that and a discussion of what's happening on the ground. We need to be praying for Israel. We need to be praying uh, for the world conflict, and also for our civil government leaders. Um, as much as I fundamentally disagree with uh, most of what the Biden administration uh, is doing, and I'm grateful for Speaker Mike Johnson in uh, Congress um, that he has a biblical worldview of civil government, uh, going back to what we talk about on this show. Um, even though I'm not a fan of the Biden administration, uh, the Bible does call us to pray for those who are in authority over us, and we need to be praying uh, for wisdom because we are all affected as American citizens by our federal headship. And ultimately, our uh, federal headship uh, as Christians and our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. But we have a citizenship still here in our civil government. And we need to take that very seriously. One of um, the, the most painful things I think that I see a lot of Christians uh, say sometimes is we just need to be so focused on eternity and it doesn't really matter what's going on in civil government because our hope is in eternity. Well, it's true that our hope is in eternity, but there is a phrase that, um, that and I forget what pastor said this, but um, said, if you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And um, that can be true sometimes for Christians. And we still need to engage uh, in our civil government, in our church government, our family government. And uh, a lot of that comes down to prayer. That is the most effective way that uh, we can fight back is on our knees daily and um, imploring um, and interceding uh, for our leaders um, and and asking uh, God for mercy on the United States and uh, and for direction. Uh, so Senator Joe Manchin, as well, who is the Democrat from West Virginia, announced yesterday that he will not run for re-election. Uh, there is some speculation. There were a couple of articles in Forbes and, and a few other uh, journalistic outlets that uh, suggested and rumors that he might run for president. Um, but according to a few of my sources on the Hill, that's really just according to journalists at this point. And he's kind of running out of time uh, unless...
Joe Biden kind of partway through next year um, ends up having to forfeit uh, the Democrat ticket and the the Democrat uh, National Committee, the DNC, will uh, figure out that type of replacement. And, and so I think it'll be interesting to see how much the Democrats uh, really invest into this West Virginia Senate seat, because uh, that has been really a, a pivotal seat. And Joe Manchin has had a lot of power because he is a fairly moderate Democrat that doesn't always go along with his party politics. And uh, West Virginia is an interesting state. Uh, We have some great people who are running uh, there in terms of uh, conservatives for higher and statewide office. Um, But in terms of that Senate seat, it's going to be very interesting to see how much money is poured into that and whether that will flip to the Republicans in the next election or uh, whether that will stay Democrat. So again, that is something to be praying about. If you have friends in West Virginia, encourage them to vote their values and understand who is running, uh, what the politics and the landscape looks like. Because often, even though these type of federal offices become national race attention, it really comes down to local politics and what's going on locally. And so speaking of the the composition of the Senate and the DNC, the companion uh, second party <laughs> uh, committee on the national level, of course, is the RNC or the Republican National Committee. And in the aftermath of the, f- the third GOP debate on Wednesday night yesterday, we were talking about the just viral moment that presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy Uh, had on the debate stage confronting RNC chair Ronna McDaniel and saying that she had been very ineffective and had fostered this this losing mentality uh, over the last uh, several elections and there wasn't a red wave uh, as was anticipated. And I actually got a lot of response uh, from all of you. And I, and I love hearing from our AFR family and our listeners. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net, uh, asking what can be done about Ronna McDaniel and and agreeing and saying that, uh, that that's she's not the preference of, of a lot of you um, who may be Republicans um, or may not be, or, you know, like me, I'm not a registered Republican. Um, I'm unaffiliated at the moment. And I did that uh, purposefully. And, and primarily, mainly, you can go out and read the, the headlines that were from 2021 uh, about that. But primarily because um, even though I used to be personally a registered Republican, um, seeing Ronna McDaniel's leadership, um, it just, to me, was so ineffective that I couldn't subscribe to the party as a whole. And, um, and of course, this is just my personal opinion. Um, you know, AFR doesn't uh, endorse either party. So I'm just speaking, um, you know, as a, as a citizen myself. Uh, but in terms of, of the party, what you have to understand and what became so clear to me during my time in Washington and working for uh, President Trump's 2020 uh, re-election campaign. And of course, uh, I I met Ronna McDaniel, um, got to know her personally, and um, there was a lot of overlap between the Trump campaign and the RNC. Um, You have to understand that this, the RNC, um, they're not elected officers in the same way that our 
uh, legislators and our representatives are elected. Um, the, the RNC has, frankly, no obligation to serve its actual constituents, which doesn't really make a lot of sense because you would think if they wanted uh, to do their job that uh, the RNC would want to hear from all of their registered Republicans, just like the DNC should want to hear from all of their registered Democrats. Like That would make sense. Um, but in the re-election that happened in uh, early January of this year for RNC chair, and it's a two-year term, uh, Rana had initially said that she would not run after four years, but she ended up um, ignoring her promise and, and running again. Uh, my friend Harmeet Dillon ran against her and, um, and, in my opinion, would have been a far better selection for RNC chair. And there were polls that were done that about 98%, give or take, of registered Republicans did not support Ronna McDaniel being uh, reelected to the RNC chair. And yet, overwhelmingly, she was reelected. Well, why did that happen? Because the RNC is simply a PAC or a political action committee. And so under the RNC rules, three members from each state and U.S. territory, the uh, the state or territory's party chair, one committee man and one committee woman, a cast ballot for chairs accounting for 168 votes of which a majority is 85. So it's these members that then are the state chairs and committee members that vote for the chair because this is not a government run agency. They have no obligation. The, the, you have to understand that the RNC and the and both parties on the national level are private organizations. This is why when you see what happens like in Tennessee, for example, um, and I always go back to this example of uh, my good friend Robbie Starbuck, who was running in the last congressional election um, last year out of Tennessee five, he was kicked off the ballot by his local a Republican Party for not being a good enough Republican, for having not uh, being registered as a Republican and voting in a couple of other things that according to their rules, they said, hey, you can't be on the ballot. And that's not disenfranchisement of voters generally, because the courts have expressly said that the parties can govern who they allow on their own ticket. And so when we look at voting overall, and we look at whether the Republican or the Democrat Party, you know, whichever party um, you happen to subscribe to, looks at uh, when we look at what their obligations are, it's really their own self-interest and it's their own party poli partisan politicking. And it, 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 they are fully um, funded by donations, uh, but they are just a political action committee and they serve their own purposes. And so this isn't a matter of necessarily the RNC looking at what their constituents want. Uh, it's looking at their own self-interest. And so the only way that an RNC chair can be ousted is by enough of the state level uh, chairs and committee members trying to to call for an ousting and actually having another vote. And so if that's something that you prefer, you can get a hold of your state level party chair, your committee man, your committee woman, and ask them, are they still supporting Ronna McDaniel? Because they should support constituents, but they don't. And they're a private organization. And we have to understand politics really isn't in the interest of citizens. And we'll be right back with more. 
The medical establishment has been playing God with the lives of innocent babies for decades now. Many have grown callous because it seems surreal to think that over 64 million babies have been lost. Preborn will not stand silent, nor should we. We cannot stand by and let babies die at the hand of abortion. That's why preborn exists, to stand up for those who cannot defend themselves. The only defense for these precious babies is their heartbeat, which begins at just three weeks and can be heard on ultrasound by five weeks. When a mother making that ultimate choice hears her baby's heartbeat and sees the precious life inside of her, the majority of the time she will choose life. By sponsoring an ultrasound for a mother, you are being the voice of the preborn. Please join Preborn in the cause for life. For just $28, you can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And if you are just joining, we are taking this day to kind of take a step back from for the rest of the show from the top trending headlines in our civil government sphere and how we as Christians engage in civil government within the three spheres of government that God ordained, the church government, the family government, and the civil government, which is what uh, on this show we typically spend the most time on. But we want to also always focus on theology or the knowledge of God, because we cannot, as Christians, effectively engage and uh, and, and really impact any of those three spheres if we are not well-versed in understanding who God is as the person of truth, what he commands for us, and what he wants for our lives. And that's why we need to be daily in scripture. We need to be reading uh, the Bible. We need to know uh, what God commands for each of those um, each of those institutions that he has ordained and specifically for our Christian life as we continue to work out our salvation. And salvation and, and the doctrine of salvation is known as soteriology. And my next guest um, who will be with me through the rest of the program, I'm very excited uh, to have him, Dr. Leighton Flowers, who's the Director of Personal Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptist. And his website is soteriology one oh one. And he will actually be at my home church in Colorado, even though I live in Florida now. Um, My home church and Pastor Gina Geraci, um, who has the Crosswalk program on Salem Media, um, does just a phenomenal job there. Uh, Dr. Flowers will be at his church, uh, which is Grace Bible Church of Longmont, this Saturday and Sunday. So November 11th, 7 to 9 p.m. and November 12th, 9 to 11.30 p.m. And I know for a lot of our AFR listeners, um, you're probably not planning on being in Colorado this weekend, but you can live stream his talk. You can go to gracebiblelongmont.org. Longmont is L-O-N-G-M-O-N-T dot org. Grace biblelongmont.org and you can click on that link to watch the live stream on YouTube for both of these great uh, talks this weekend Saturday and Sunday. So Dr. Flowers um, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so I'm really excited uh, to to listen in to uh, to this Saturday and Sunday and um, and to 
talk about soteriology. Um, first and foremost, um, why is the doctrine of soteriology so important to understanding theology and, and understanding the essentials of salvation? That's a great question. Um, obviously, for Christians, our relationship with God is paramount. Um, what, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's what theology is all about, uh, what, what we believe about who God is and how to have a relationship with him, which is what salvation's about. How do we reconcile with our creator? How do we have a relationship with our creator? And uh, throughout history, there have been various views among theologians with regard to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Um, and that has caused, uh, obviously, many splits of denominations and uh, infighting among Christians, um, and that, that's a sad state, but that's a, a reflection of the, the sin of man, uh, our fallenness, and our misunderstanding of the Scriptures. And so it's, it's always important for us as Christians to dive deep into the, to the Scripture, to understand what we believe and why we believe it. And the doctrine of our salvation is one of the most important doctrines we can discuss as Christians. Absolutely. And, you know, there is a phenomenon going on in a lot of churches now that is um, really— I think called or typified as as easy believism or this idea that well as long as you believe in God then you know you're fine and and we just need to have a passion for God instead of actually understanding a biblical truth and and being well versed in theology because this is just too divisive if we go further um, and and obviously I think that 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 is a dangerous view to say that as long as we're just part of the church or we just believe in God that we know that will be fine. Um, how, how should we as Christians approach these doctrines when they can sometimes be divisive? Yeah, and just because somebody has a disagreement about, about a particular theological point doesn't necessarily mean they have to be divisive about that. Um, anybody who's married knows that you can disagree with your spouse over many different things, but you can still learn to be mature enough to deal with those disagreements in a way that you can maintain unity in, in the relationship. And the same thing is with the family of God. There's going to be various doctrinal views, um, some of which need to be confronted because they can lead to dangerous conclusions. Uh, what you just mentioned with the easy believism or the what I used to refer to as the kind of the get-out-of-hell-free card, you know, kind of like the monopoly, get-out-of-jail-free uh, you know, if I walk an aisle, I say a prayer, I get baptized when I'm a baby or baptized at some later point in life, then it doesn't really matter how I live or what I really believe now as long as I kind of, you know, kind of nominal Christianity. That's a dangerous belief system because it, it's giving people a false sense of security when in reality they, they've never really related to or known God in the way the Scripture describes. And so those kinds of uh, false beliefs or false understanding of, of Christian faith need to be addressed and confronted for the sake of those who may be, uh, you know, stumbling because of them. And you wrote this uh, this great book called The Potter's Promise, A Biblical Defense of Traditional Soteriology. And I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Layton Flowers, who's the Director of Personal Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptist, also part of the SBC, and, um, and chronicled in this book is your journey um, out of Calvinism and uh, and you were previously a Calvinist, and, and you ended up rejecting that as part of your understanding of soteriology. And I find it interesting that, that uh, you call this traditional soteriology. Um, so unpack that for us a little bit. 
Sure. It, it's actually referencing the tradition of the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, the last hundred years or so, most Southern Baptist scholars and pastors and teachers have believed what, what I now believe with regard to the, the desire and love of God for all people. God wants all people to be saved. He's provided atonement through Christ for all people. Anyone and everyone can be saved. Most of the people in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last hundred years or so have held to that doctrine. However, you know, the first fledgling group of Southern Baptists back right after the Civil War um, were tended to be more Calvinistic. And, and for the listeners who may not know what that is, uh, Calvinism is, is, is a, based on the namesake John Calvin, but it's not really about him. It's about a soteriological or a theological view of salvation, which basically says God predestines or determines beforehand who's going to believe in him, and he causes that to happen through an irresistible work of grace. And so he's picked certain people for reasons that aren't revealed to us. He just chooses who he, he chooses out of the his own kind purposes, and he elects them. They're called the elect. And everyone else he reprobates or passes over everybody else. And he causes those people to become believers through a work of grace. And and that is basically, in a nutshell, what Calvinism entails. Um, I, I used to believe that because I thought certain passages in the Scripture taught that from the, the way I was uh, uh, taught through my, my seminary courses and some friends and, and books by well-known Calvinists in our world today, like John Piper and John MacArthur and others, I, I really adopted that way of thinking but uh, and held to Calvinism for a good 10 years of my life until, uh, long story short, I, I went through a study and ended up writing my dissertation on this topic and was actually persuaded out of Calvinism. And, uh, and so one of the reasons I started the broadcast was to help people to understand that there are some very good and robust soteriological, theological answers to the the Calvinistic way of, of reading the text. And I, and I found that there was a void of that online. Everywhere I was looking on Google and on YouTube, there was a lot of really good Calvinists putting out material explaining their soteriology, but there wasn't a lot from the other side. And that was one of the things that I was trying to answer with my channel is to put out in a, in a cordial, kind way. I'm not trying to uh, besmirch uh, all Calvinists as being heretics and not brothers or anything like that. I, I'm in a, hopefully in a, a kind and ironic way trying to help people to understand why there are a lot of really good uh, theologians and pastors who reject Calvinism and for really good reasons. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers and his uh, his website and also uh, the podcast is at soteriology101.com. And you mentioned uh, John MacArthur as well. And uh, listeners will know, I mean, I represented him and uh, in his church through the uh, the church closure and, and the fight with um, Los Angeles uh, County and Gavin Newsom. And I actually had um, the opportunity to speak with him extensively um, about Calvinism and about this view, because um, how I was also raised, and the um, and listeners will also know, you know, being homeschooled and in the um, the theological upbringing of, um, through my parents' mentorship and also my pastor, um, I was no, I'm not Calvinist, and and I understood. Um, the the different view, but I wanted to understand why someone like John MacArthur, who I sincerely respect, I consider him one of my personal pastors, um, what his yeah. view is, and and one of um, one of the things that he said, and I would love your response to this, um, Dr. Flowers, is that when he, when he talks about irresistible grace. 
Um, his view of Calvinism, and, and obviously this is me articulating what he said. So, um, you know, if, if, if he listens to this later and, and wants to correct me, absolutely. <laughs> but um, but yeah. my understanding uh, of how he described this to me was um, when we are all fully depraved in our sin and, you know, total depravity, which is the first um, petal of tulip um, for the tea, then we have no ability in and of ourselves to recognize God's goodness. So even if he offered salvation, we would choose evil because we have no ability within ourselves at all. It's not until then the irresistible grace. And then once he does that work of regeneration in the elect, then we have no choice because once we see and can see clearly the difference, I mean, almost like the Wizard of Oz, once you see color, you're going to choose color. But when you can't see color then you don't even know it exists but when you do see color then you will have um there's no way that you will reject goodness and and so what's your response to to that view of god's calling and the regenerative work that the bible speaks about yeah calvinists are um you know really start with a presupposition that that we as provisionists and I, that's what i refer to instead of always saying traditional sociology because that can be divisive because some of them want to claim the tradition um i i i've referred to god's provision we're provisionist in that we believe god provides for all people and the calvinist really emphasizes this concept of total depravity total inability which is you're born in a condition because of the fall of adam you're born in a condition where you will always reject the gospel. You will always hate the things of God. You will always, uh, even even when the appeal of God comes to you through the gospel, the preacher preaches, you read the Bible, whatever it may be, you will always say no because of the condition of your heart from birth. And therefore, God has to intervene, which he does for his elect. He intervenes by regenerating them or giving them new life. So you're reborn in order to believe on Calvinism. Regeneration precedes faith on Calvinism. Now, Calvinism isn't a monolithic group, and so there are different forms of Calvinism, and they may use different vernacular. So I'll be clear to say that. But I, I'm pretty sure from listening to MacArthur, he would he would affirm what I just now said. What I what I, I push think he back would on too. is I don't believe. Oh yeah, I, what I would push back on is the, the the total inability aspect. I think that was a concept introduced in the fifth century. I don't believe it was uh, it was taught by any major scholars or known major uh, church early church fathers. And, and I even have other Calvinists who, who actually admit that this is probably the case. And so this concept, an idea that we're born because of God's decree uh, as a punishment for the fall, unable to respond to the very gospel calling us to reconciliation, seems like a bridge too far for me to, to cross. And I, I don't find it biblically, and I don't find it even logically tenable. Um, and I explained why on my broadcast in more detail, but it's basically this idea you're spiritually dead like Lazarus is dead, they'll say. MacArthur even has a sermon where he compares our spiritual condition to Lazarus. The problem with that is is that the Bible never compares our spiritual condition as lost people to Lazarus, um, and I think they're stretching that text. Um, to be spiritually dead means to be separated like the prodigal son was separated from the father due to rebellion. He, and he said he was lost, but now he's found. He was he was uh, dead, but now he's alive. So he wasn't literally incapable of humbling himself and coming home, because obviously that's what he did. Uh, the, the metaphor of spiritual deadness in Scripture does not mean inability to respond to the life-giving truth. It means that you're separated from God due to rebellion, just like the Adam and Eve. It says, when you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Well, they didn't drop dead physically. They were cast out of his presence outside of the garden. 
they were separated due to rebellion. Same thing with the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Well, even good Calvinistic scholars don't interpret dead there to mean inability to respond to Jesus' warning. No, they're they're to draw near to their first love, to come back to him, because they're separated due to rebellion. So whenever they, they hyper-literalize this concept of spiritual deadness to mean you're now unable to respond, what I think they've done unintentionally is removed human responsibility, because inerrant within that word responsibility is the ability to respond. And if you say people can't respond positively to the gospel because of the way they were born, then how can you rationally hold them responsible for something they can't control? And that's really the... the huge problem with Calvinism is that it so overemphasizes God's determinism of everything and God's control that it undermines human culpability, and it also, I think, unintentionally brings to question God's character and his goodness, because it seems to make him the author of a sin, the worst sin of all, our rebellion against him, because we can't accept his offer of grace even through the gospel because of the way he decreed us to be born on Calvinism. And I do not believe that's a biblical concept. Now, I understand they have proof texts. We go over those proof texts in my book and in in the podcast to explain how we uh, uh, understand those texts and how scholars throughout the centuries have understood those texts in a non-Calvinistic way. Um, So we're not, again, we're not trying to say people like MacArthur have nothing good to say or they're not great men, ministries and pastors. Uh, I I say this all the time on my podcast about how much respect I've had for for John Piper. He's been at our our events here in Texas. Uh, MacArthur, we have a lot of love for him. I own one of his study Bibles and still use it. I mean, I'm not casting these guys out as... And we'll take a break here real quick. Um, And we're talking with Dr. Leighton Flowers. His uh, website is soteriology101.com. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom. CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
Well, next week is going to be our collection week for Operation Christmas Child. You can find out more about that at SamaritansPurse.org OCC to learn more and find a drop-off location near you. This is a milestone year as Operation Christmas Child is celebrating its 30th year of ministry. And this is a direct way for you to equip the local church around the world, uh, fill any standard size shoebox, and you will also be spreading the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So learn more at SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. So we have been talking about soteriology or the doctrine of salvation with Dr. Layton Flowers, who wrote the book, The Potter's Promise, a biblical defense of traditional soteriology. And his website is soteriology101.com. And Dr. Flowers will be in Longmont, Colorado tomorrow and Sunday, November 11th and 12th. Um, tomorrow, 7 to 9 p.m. and Sunday morning, 9 to, um, or rather Sunday evening, 9 to 11.30 p.m. Um, I think actually that's supposed to be a.m. So um, I, I think that is supposed to be a.m. So 9 to 11.30 a.m. Anyway, um, you can go to gracebiblelongmont.org. And if you are not going to be in Longmont, Colorado, you can uh, live stream this uh, tomorrow and Sunday for Dr. Layton Flowers. And um Dr. Flowers, before the break, we were talking about uh, these these verses that uh, Calvinists will use to describe the uh, the theory of of tulip or total depravity, their their uh, doctrine of uh, salvation, and how people who are not Calvinists, such as yourself, who don't think that the entire gospel and the entire truth of the Bible would reconcile those verses in the same way that Calvinists do. Um, so I want to ask you about a couple of those specific verses, because these are the, the some of the passages that um, are difficult to reconcile. And how should we understand this? For example, in Ephesians, um, and I'm reading from ESV, this is um, chapter one, verses four and five, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Um, so how do we understand that from a non-Calvinist perspective? Sure. I always say that context kills Calvinism, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, I, that context kills anything that's not a, a proper a reading of the text. And of course, that's my argument. If, if someone like MacArthur were here, he would probably argue with that, that point. But the context of Ephesians 1 starts with the, it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, that in him, in Christ Jesus, is repeated throughout the, the, this first chapter over, over almost uh, 11, 12 times. Um, and so he's talking about the faithful in Christ. And so when you understand that and you get to verse 4, he chose us in him, well, what does that mean? Well, he chose the faithful in Christ. He chose those who have faith in Jesus, those who are in Christ through faith. What did he choose us for? To be holy and blameless. So, Jenna, you and I can know that we are going to be made holy and blameless, conformed into the image of his Son. The other place that the word predestination is used is over in Romans chapter 8. Well, God is predestined for those who love him and are called according to his purpose in Romans 8. He is predestined that we will be conformed into the image of his Son, which is what to be holy and blameless is. And this is the choice he's made from the very beginning. This has always been his plan. So whether you are Jew or Gentile, which is really the major issue Paul is dealing with, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, God, from the very beginning, this has always been his plan. From the very beginning, his plan has been those who have faith in Christ, those who are in Jesus, 
whether Jew or Gentile, will be made holy and blameless. You will be adopted, it says. Now, sometimes we think of adoption as equal with salvation, but if you read Romans 8.23, Paul actually says we eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies, the adoption. And so he actually refers to adoption as a future hope, the redemption of our bodies. And so what in Paul's mind, he's not saying that we, certain people are predestined by God to become believers in Christ so as to be adopted. What he's saying is that God from the beginning has predestined for all who believe in him to be adopted. And that's something we all eagerly await. And so a good example of this is tomorrow I fly to Denver. And so Southwest has predetermined that that airplane will go from Dallas to Denver tomorrow at noon. Well, I am still responsible for whether I get on that plane, regardless of the fact that it has been predestined to go to that destination. Denver is the destination. It will go there. But you're responsible to get on the plane. In the same way, if you're in Christ, the destination's already been set. You will be made holy and blameless. You will be brought into glory. You will be justified. You will be sanctified. You will be glorified. That is the destination God has determined beforehand from the foundation of the world. That is the destiny for all who are in Christ. But who's responsible to get on the plane? Who's responsible to put the faith in Christ? You are. And that's where individual responsibility is so important. You can't remove that. Uh, and, I, and I think unintentionally, Calvinism removes human responsibility by ultimately saying God's responsible for whether you get on the plane or not. And, and, and whether Calvinists are intending to do that or not, I think their doctrine and the implications of it, for some people, remove that responsibility to think, oh, I don't really have to do anything. God will make me want to do it if he really has elected me. And that, I think, can be somewhat devastating to certain people because they start thinking in a more fatalistic way about salvation. Yeah, and I think that that also has a an impact on our understanding of evangelism, because what would be the purpose then of sharing the good news if we if it's going to fall on deaf ears or we, we don't necessarily know who is going to be saved or not? And the Calvinist response, of course, is because we don't know, we need to continue um, to share the good news and those who God predestined will hear it. But it, it really puts a damper, I think, on the calling to fulfill the Great Commission and, and teach the truth and also see seems in conflict with um, John 3.16 that's saying and God, that God loved the world. And, and it doesn't just say the elect or those that he predestined. And, and it does, as you mentioned in the previous seg- segment, Dr. Flowers, it does seem to be in conflict with the nature and character of an all-loving God who desires that all should be saved, which the Bible also says. That's correct. And, and Calvinists, of course, have answers for those proof texts as well. They have explanations uh, as to how they would explain that from their worldview. Um, I, I don't find them to be convincing, obviously. And, and so we just push back in love and say, you know, I really do think it's, it's self-evident within Scripture that God does desire the salvation of all people, holding out his hands to them all day long, longing to gather them like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and so many other passages of Scripture that indicate he does not desire the death of anyone, but for all to come, turn, and live. And so the, the scriptures do seem to indicate that you believe so as to be given new life, not that you're made alive so as to believe. Uh, reflecting back on what we were talking earlier with, with uh, total inability and deadness, the, the order of salutis, the order of salvation on Calvinism, is that you have to be born again, made alive, in order to believe. And the Bible seems to indicate, for example, in John 20, 31, these things were written, speaking of the gospel, the gospel was written so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life. 
Well, the order there seems to be very, very obvious. You believe in order to get new life. You come to the life giver, who is Christ, in order to get life. Jesus said in John 5.40 to the Pharisees, he says, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Again, if Calvinism were true, it seems like he should have said, I've refused to give you life. I've refused to regenerate you so that you would certainly come to me. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't put the, the onus on himself. He puts it onto them. You refuse to come to me, the life giver, so that you may have life. And so I think the order of salutis, the order of salvation throughout Scripture is quite evident, that you come to Jesus in order to get life. God doesn't just unilaterally give certain people life, causing them to come to Jesus, as Calvinism would entail. Yeah, and and putting this in kind of a legal analogy, um, this became more clear to me in in studying um, the Book of Romans and the whole New Testament when I went through law school, and you probably wouldn't think contract law class would have anything to do with soteriology. But for me, learning the differences between a unilateral promise or what the nature of a contract is, which is promise for performance. And you have to have both of the agreement between both actors to then get to a contract. And so if there is a conditional promise, basically saying the promisor is saying, I will give you something, but you have to do something in order to receive that. Like, even if it's, hey, I I have this free couch on Craigslist, come over and get it. Well, the person still has to come and actually pick it up in order to receive what the promisor is offering. And so you have to have a, a mutual agreement and you have to have uh, performance on both sides in order to have a contract and salvation um, to, to me looking at scripture is not just a unilateral uh, promise saying that God is going to give salvation to those he elects whether or not they accept it because that's clearly not scriptural and that's almost I would think the implication of Calvinism is saying that God would force salvation on those that he elects and he would withhold it from those he does not rather than this being a conditional promise saying I am offering salvation to all but you must believe and you must accept it and then rather than in in the legal term of contract we would say then the the spiritual term is salvation Mm -hmm. well and The way that a Calvinist would rebut that would be to say, well, you know, you going to pick up that couch is earning it somehow. Um, The analogy I've used before is like if if there was an eternally high rope going up to heaven and you were climbing that rope trying to get to heaven um, and you're, you know, through your good deeds and your works. And the bad news was, well, guess what? It's an eternally high rope and you never can climb it. There's nothing you can do to earn or merit your way to heaven. And so the good news is, however, if you let go of the rope and trust Christ, he'll carry you the rest of the way. And then a Calvinist steps in and goes, oh, wait, 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 let go, letting go of the, the rope, ceasing working and trusting in someone else, that's also a work, because you would be earning your salvation by receiving this free gift. And so it, it has to be effectually given in order for God to really get all the credit for it on Calvinism. And I just push back my Calvinist friends. I say, where is that true in any other walk of life or intuitively? Since when does a gift have to be irresistibly or effectually given in order for the giver to get full credit for giving the gift? I think God should be credited for all of the salvation he's provided, even for those who reject it. For after all, if they perish, according to Paul, they perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. They don't perish because God didn't really want them or Jesus didn't really die for them. They perish because they refused the gift of God. And God should get credit for the gifts he provides, even if they squander that gift. 
And so a lot of Calvinists will say, well, faith is a gift of God, and salvation is all of God, and salvation is a gift. And I'm just going, yeah, of course it is. But you're still responsible to receive it. And by receiving it, you're not meriting righteousness or goodness or worth in any, any way. God is imputing the righteousness of Christ onto the account of those who believe by grace. He doesn't have to do that. So in other words, believers don't deserve heaven any more than unbelievers deserve heaven. Uh, the prodigal didn't deserve being restored as a son just because he walked home in humiliation. That was all the father's doing, uh, unilaterally, the decision of the father to restore the son. He, he could have cast him out or had him stoned or something because that's what he deserved for his rebellion. The fact that the, the father is a gracious father who receives him back in his humiliation and, and restores him as a son that's a mark of the character and the goodness of the Father, not something that the Son earned by coming home. And what the Calvinists have mistakenly done is ultimately given merit to the concept of accepting the free offer and the free grace of God. If you're doing that freely, in other words, if you, you're accepting it freely and, and not by decree, then somehow you're earning or meriting the gift. And there's just nothing intuitive that's, that's correct about that in any other walk of life, nor do I find it anywhere convincingly taught in Scripture. Yeah, and, and that really makes sense because we wouldn't even think of that in the context of, you know, Christmas is, is upcoming and you give someone a gift just because they unwrap it or they accept it. That doesn't mean that somehow they are, we are saying now they merited it or um, they earned it and you were obligated to give it to them um, or, or even as parents um, take care of and provide for their children and give them you know all the good things. Um, that doesn't mean that we would think of this as children are now um, helping in that. I mean, we know that children are even called dependents under the law. I mean, there, there is, as you're saying, Dr. Flowers, no other context that we would attribute that same type of merit or earning when it is clearly a free gift from the giver. And so in just the last two minutes I have with you, and, and we could go so much more in depth here. And this is why I'm so grateful that you will be um, at Grace Bible Longmont. Go to gracebiblelongmont.org. And I have confirmed that is Sunday morning. So it's Saturday yes. night, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. And then Sunday morning, 9 to 1130 a.m. And for those of you not in Colorado, you can live stream this, gracebiblelongmont.org. Um, in, in just the last two minutes I have with you here, um, when people are saying, you know, these things are divisive, why can't we just all, you know, believe in, in the Lord? Why do we need to get into these types of discussions and parse this out so much? Um, why is it so important that we understand theology instead of just have a passion for God? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I do get a lot of responses on my videos with that kind of uh, message. You know, let's just all get along. Let's not talk about these divisive things. Um, you know, why do you talk about all this this all the time? And then, of course, I look on their Facebook page, and they have uh, every every football play that's there in all the dissection of all the you know, putting a ball in a hole or carrying a, a pigskin across a, a field. I said, let's put things in perspective. This is the doctrine of our salvation. And, and for us to discuss the various views in a cordial and kind way and respect with respect to our other brothers and sisters who disagree with us, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that, that's the way uh, church history has been throughout the ages. They'll come to the city gates and, and talk through these things. But you can still show respect to people while you're disagreeing with them. And we have to understand that any doctrine, if it happens to be false, if it happens to be a misinterpretation, can lead people down a, a bad trail where they, they, they start saying, like I've got some examples of people saying on our program, well, it doesn't matter about me. You know, God, either God's chosen me or he hasn't. I, nothing I can do about it. Wow. And they that would be really the responsibility. 
Yeah, fatalistic. So the uh, the website is soteriology101.com. And tomorrow and Sunday, gracebiblelongmont.org. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.